You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Ted, for the intro. It's always good to be together to be able to share the word of the Lord together. And I'll apologize in advance to the junior and senior high youth. Over the years, they've heard so much of me. (laughs) And Tim and Cheryl are not here, so obviously that's why you folks have to stay up. So if you tune me out, that's understandable. You've heard my voice a lot. But uh, Tim and Cheryl couldn't be with us this morning, so that's why you folks are up here. So ultimately, you need to be mad at them. So the next time you see them, and Tim and Cheryl, if you're on Zoom, I hope you're hearing this. You need to be mad at them and let them know the next time you see them. Um, But seriously, let's pray before we spend some time uh, looking at the word of the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you because you are such a, a good God. And Father, we don't want to have to wait for a holiday to tell us that we should be giving thanks to you. We're grateful for this holiday. We're grateful for the opportunity to thank you, to gather with family and friends, and to reflect on uh, the blessings that you've given us, how good you have been to us. But Father, we certainly don't want to wait for uh, the last Thursday in November to do that. We want to be a people who are, are quick to give you thanks at all times and in all circumstances, even as was prayed earlier in our service today. So God, I pray that you would help us to to be a people who are filled with your joy, who genuinely rejoice in you. And again, Lord, not something that is fake, not something that is superficial, not not even a joy that denies the, the hardness and the difficulty and the brokenness of this life but a joy that is deeper than that, a joy that is stronger than that, a joy that still finds that you are a good God, that you are a faithful God, that you are a present God in the midst of all that is wrong with this world and all that is wrong around us. That's the kind of joy we want to have, and that's the place we want to find ourselves as we give thanks to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. And particularly, Father, right now, I want to pray that this time that we are about to spend together in your word will help us to do that. As we read some of your word together, as we consider your scriptures, we pray that you would do that work that needs to be done in each of our hearts that you would give us that joy that can only be found in you, that you would increase our faith, that you would make us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, because we know, Father, these are things that you are doing and want to do in each of our lives. So right now, Lord, we pray that this time would be fruitful, maybe not going to make us feel better, maybe not going to be fun, things that the world puts such a premium on. But Lord, we pray that this time would be fruitful, that it would produce in us fruit that will last. 
Because Father, ultimately more than anything else, that's what we want. It's great to have fun. It's great to have pleasant experiences. But Father, we want something more than that. We want to live lives that will produce fruit that will endure, fruit that will last. Jesus, that's why you created us. Jesus, that's why you saved us. Jesus, to that you have called us. So as we spend this time now looking to you through your word, we pray that that would happen. And we know, Lord, that can only happen as your spirit is present, as your spirit is moving, as your spirit is speaking. And so we pray now, Lord, all other voices would be drowned out. We pray now, Lord, that the only voice that we would hear is yours. The voice of your spirit speaking to us through your word and doing in us that work that needs to be done. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. Uh, as Ted already mentioned, and as most of you are aware, we have been working our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they really are a continuous account, and it's powerful to be able to read them together. In some of the older copies of the books that we have, they actually appear together as a single text on a single scroll. So according to the reading program, I believe today we are on Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. But we're actually going to jump ahead and look at Tuesday's reading, which will be Nehemiah chapter 4. So turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 4. And while you are turning there, just want to remind you that last week, Ted shared with us a message on revival and some of the things that need to take place in order for us to see revival. And he was working his way through the book of Ezra, picking a, a, a few, actually, uh, passages that spoke to that. And hopefully, each one of us were able to receive some of the really powerful challenges that the Lord was giving us. Well, today, actually, what I want to talk about is not quite as happy a message as revival. Because today, what I want to talk about is one of the greatest hindrances to revival. And you saw it in Ezra, and you were beginning to see it in Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah chapter 4, it's put on clear display. We want to see revival. We want to see the Lord revive our own hearts. We want to see the Lord revive this community. We want to see the Lord bring revival to this city, to this nation. These are things that we have been praying for, and these are desires of our hearts. And last week, Ted really encouraged us. What are some of the things that we need to be doing in order to see revival come? Well, today, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4, the Lord is going to put in our attention some of the hindrances to revival. And this is not necessarily going to be an easy message to hear. Um, as you will hear me say probably a couple times in this message, I like things that are easy. I like things that are fun. I like things that are pleasant. Uh, yesterday I had the opportunity to watch Ohio State play Michigan State. And that was pleasant. That was fun. 
I really enjoyed that. And okay, I'm not a, a, a opposed to that. But what we realize in the kingdom, those are not really priorities for the Lord. If things had been reversed yesterday and Michigan State had destroyed Ohio State, the kingdom would not really be adversely affected. The purposes of God would not really have been greatly hindered. And so it's important for us to remember that. And some of the things that we're going to talk about today, I'm just giving you a fair warning. They're not necessarily going to be fun. They're not going to be pleasant. But it is hopefully going to be the Word of God. And it is hopefully going to help us to understand some things that He wants us to understand and to continue to press into Him and hopefully continue to be expectant to see the work that He wants to do in our midst. So Nehemiah chapter 4, and let's just begin by reading verse 1. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. So if you've been reading Nehemiah, or if you are familiar with Nehemiah, you realize that in the opening chapters of Nehemiah, he is actually in Susa, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, and he gets report that things in Jerusalem are not going well, that the wall is broken down and that the city is in disrepair. And he doesn't say, well, you know, that's a long ways away and I've got a great position here with the, the king or with the emperor of the Persian Empire and the cupbearer to the king, and I'll, I'll certainly pray for them, but, you know, hopefully they'll be able to sort those things out. No, it becomes an incredible burden on his heart, so much so that when he is serving the king, the king notices that he is downcast. And so he asks Nehemiah, why are you downcast? Why are you so heavy-hearted in my presence? I've never seen you like this before. And Nehemiah says, well, isn't it right for me to feel this way? Isn't it right for me to be this way when I've heard report that my people and my city, Jerusalem, are not doing well? And so what we see here is that the Lord had given a burden to Nehemiah. The Lord had put a calling upon him and had put good work in front of him. And of course, as we know, Nehemiah and a group of others make their way back to Jerusalem. Ezra is already there. The return under Ezra, which is recorded for us in Ezra 7 and following, that took place about 14 years before Nehemiah and his return. And so Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he sees the disrepair of the wall and that, and that sort of secret night mission where he goes around and inspects the wall with just a handful of folks. A really interesting passage of scripture. Given some of the details about the layout of ancient Jerusalem, we're given the names of some of the gates. Um, quite, quite fascinating from a historical standpoint. But also just what Nehemiah was doing because this thing that the Lord was stirring in his heart was coming to fruition. He was about to bear some fruit that was going to last. And it wasn't just simply the building of a physical wall, because most of that wall is long gone. It was being faithful to do the work to which the Lord had called him. That was the eternal fruit that the Lord was stirring in Nehemiah's heart. In Nehemiah's case, it really was physically building a wall. 
It really was digging through rubble and lifting up heavy stones and dealing with mortar. It really was a construction project. Now, for some of you, that may be part of what the Lord has called you to, some physical labor, doing something of physical value, but you need to see it as having far more than that. It has eternal value. Anything that the Lord has called us to, the good work to which the Lord has called us to, that has eternal value. That is eternal fruit that he wants to bring forth in our lives. So that's what Nehemiah started to do. But what we see here in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 4 is that as Nehemiah and some of the other post-exilic Jews, Jews that had returned from the exile, who were living in Jerusalem, who joined Nehemiah in the work. So as Nehemiah and some of the post-exilic Jews started working on the wall, opposition arose. And we see that as a repeated theme in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah chapter 4 is devoted almost exclusively to talking about the opposition that arose. In this case, it was an individual named Sanballat. Later, we'll see it was another individual named Tobiah. We see also there were groups of people, folks from Ashdod, one of the Philistine city-states. The Philistines continued to be a thorn in the side of the people of God. But we see that as Nehemiah... And the Jews living in Jerusalem, we see that as they made a decision to do what the Lord was asking them to do, that there arose opposition. And if you think anything has changed, if you think anything is different today, you are completely mistaken. If you make a decision to do what the Lord asks of you, you will face opposition. That simply is going to be. Now, you may not want to hear that. You may not enjoy hearing that. But if you don't hear it, you're simply burying your head in the sand. When we, as the people of God, choose and make a decision to say, Lord, I am going to do what you are asking of me. I am going to be faithful. I am going to be obedient. I am going to be where you want me to be. I am going to do what you want me to do, or at least make every effort that I can. As soon as we, as the people of God, make that decision, there will be opposition. Now, for some of us, as we hear that, that intimidates us right away. That intimidates us right away. And it gives us a pause or a hesitation or with saying, maybe I'm not ready to do what the Lord wants me to do. Maybe I'm not ready to take that step. Well, you know, that reminds me of something that Jesus said on quite a few occasions. He said, consider the cost. Consider the cost of following me. 
Because it's not going to be the easiest life. It's not going to be the most pleasant life. It's not going to be the life that produces the most fun. So before you say you want to follow me, consider the cost. You know, there were times that would-be followers of Jesus approached him, and he actually made it more difficult. He actually said, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure you are ready for this? Are you sure this is what you want? Because following me is not going to be the easiest. Following me is not going to be a smooth paved highway with no traffic. Following me is going to be hard. And following me is going to cost you. And following me means that you will be opposed. Are you sure that's what you want? That's what Jesus says, repeatedly. You know, and again, I feel like sometimes we really soften the gospel. Sometimes we really soften the message of salvation. Salvation is glorious. Salvation is incredible. Salvation is the most amazing thing that any human being can experience. And salvation is totally free. We contribute nothing. We can't earn it. We can't work for it, as we were reminded earlier. But make no mistake about it, salvation will cost you everything. And if it doesn't, then you are receiving a false gospel. I don't know how else to say that. Following Jesus, it will cost us everything. It will cost us everything. And when you choose to live a life of obedience to Jesus, you will be opposed. You will have difficulty. You will have opposition. There's just no other way to read the scriptures. And so each one of us has to ask ourselves, Lord, am I ready for this? Am I ready to count the cost? Am I ready to take up my cross and die daily? Am I ready to endure the opposition that will arise? Because, you know, one of the things that the enemy loves, one of the things the enemy loves is to keep Christians and to keep the church sidelined. We hear about opposition. We hear about struggle. We hear about difficulty. And we start to get intimidated. And we start to get scared. And we start to get a little lazy. And we start to get a little distracted. And we start to say, Lord, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm up for this. And the enemy wins. And the enemy wins. When I in my flesh choose the path of least resistance, when I in my flesh choose what is easy, when my, in my flesh, do simply what I want to do because it's the most fun, it's the least difficult, the enemy wins. You see, the Lord has enemies. And his enemies hate him. His enemies despise him. And his enemies are doing everything they can to destroy him and to destroy his work. Now, we know that they will fail. We know that they will fail. But that doesn't decrease the intensity of their hatred of our Lord. It doesn't increase, decrease the ferocity of their attacks against our Lord. And so 
the more that we choose to follow Jesus, the more that we choose to put him on display, the more that we choose to let his light shine through us, the more the enemies that hate God, the more they will hate us. You see, if we're just kind of on the sideline and living a pretty mild and unobservable Christian life, then the enemy's not too concerned with us. The more that we step out and the more that we live for him and the more that we put him on display and the more that we refuse to compromise and the more that we determine to live a life of obedience and faith and trust in Christ, you see, now all of a sudden Jesus is shining through us. Now all of a sudden the presence of Christ in us is noticeable and it's having an impact and it's influencing and it's changing the situation and the people around us. Now all of a sudden the ones who hate our Lord, well now they hate us. And now they will come at us. And sometimes they will come at us hard. And we've got to simply say, okay, Lord, this is the way it is. This is the situation. You see, Nehemiah had a burden from the Lord. Nehemiah had a passion from the Lord. Nehemiah had a calling from the Lord. And Nehemiah was faithful, and Nehemiah was obedient, and Nehemiah walked in that calling. And as he stepped out and did what the Lord was asking of him, opposition arose. And he had enemies. And he had enemies that hated him, and he had enemies that wanted to kill him, and he had enemies that wanted to stop him and what he was doing no matter what. That's the story of Nehemiah. That's particularly the story of Nehemiah chapter 4. So each one of us has a, a regular challenge that the Lord is putting in front of us. Are you willing to lose it all for me? Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to die daily? Are you willing to let that opposition rise against you because you prove and choose to be faithful to me? And as I said, some of us hearing right now are like, uh, I'm not sure I'm up for that. Well, if you're not, ask the Lord to change your heart. If you're not, ask the Lord to change your heart. Because I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of days I'm not up for that. There's a lot of days my flesh is strong. And my flesh is just like, Lord, I just want the easy way. I want the easy choice. I want the easy life. I want the easy path. There's a lot of days my flesh is very, very strong. And saying, I'm not sure I'm up for this, Lord. But Lord, help me. Change my heart. Change my heart. Make me ready to face the opposition that will come because I'm choosing to live a life for you. That's where the Lord wants us. Because we see here in this opening verse, we've only gotten through verse 1. It says, Sembalat was furious. Sembalat was enraged. And what was Nehemiah doing? He was simply rebuilding a wall. But you see, on a spiritual level, what Nehemiah was doing is Nehemiah was doing that eternal work that the Lord had called him to. Remember, the eternal work was not the physical wall. That physical wall that Nehemiah rebuilt was long since destroyed. I think archaeology has found 
bits and pieces of it, but for the most part, that wall is destroyed. That was not the eternal work of Nehemiah. The eternal work of Nehemiah was that he was doing something in obedience to the Lord. And that was an eternal work. That was a spiritual work. And the ferocity of the opposition. Sanballat was furious. Sanballat was enraged. Why? Because Nehemiah was stepping up and saying, I'm going to do what my God is asking me to do. I am going to do everything I can to be obedient and to be faithful. And the enemy hated him. The enemy hated him. And that last part of verse 1, it says, and began to mock. So let's pick it up in verse 2. It says, and in the presence of his associates, that is, in the presence of Sanballat and his associates, and the army of Samaria, he said, so this is Sanballat, what did he specifically say as he rose up in opposition and rose up in hatred against Nehemiah? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So we are told some of the mocking, some of the scorn, some of the derision that Nehemiah and his companions were facing. And we see here that Sembalad and Tobiah and the others, they were seeking to discourage the work of the Lord. And we see that they were particularly attacking Nehemiah. He says, you feeble Jews. Or another possible translation is, you miserable Jews. So they were attacking their character. And that's one of the things the enemy loves to do. The enemy loves to attack the character of the people of God. He loves to remind us of our sins and of our failures and of our weaknesses and of all the mistakes we've made, and all the condemnation that we are deserving of. The enemy loves to do that. Much of the enemy, in what he does against us, he lives there. He attacks our character. But we see here also, he attacks the resources that Nehemiah and the other Jews had. Are you really going to bring these stones back to life? They're completely burned. It's a pile of rubble. How do you think you're going to build a wall from that? And so they were attacking the resources that the people of God had. And the enemy loves to do that. Not only does the enemy attack our character, but the enemy attacks our abilities. You're too stupid. You're too slow. You're too whatever. You'll never be able to do this. You're not gifted enough. You're not talented enough. You'll never be able to do this. The enemy loves to constantly put those words in front of us as we make an effort to follow what God is asking. And then we see Tobiah saying, well, you know, if even a fox, and foxes are not that heavy. I think foxes are about 
8 to 10 pounds, not much weight at all. He says, you know, even if a little fox ran around your wall, it would collapse, mocking the effort that Nehemiah and the other Jews were making. And the enemy loves to do that. You know, look, look at what you're doing. It's not going to make a difference. Why do you even bother? And the last time you tried, you failed miserably. What good did you do? You made a bigger mess of it. These are constantly, constantly, constantly coming against us. Attacks against our character. Attacks against our ability. Attacks against our effort. And our enemy loves to do that. Our enemy loves to do that. He loves to mess with our heads. He loves to mess with our thoughts. And he's persistent like that annoying drip. He's persistent in constantly reminding us of sin and failure and disappointing effort and lack of ability and lack of experience and lack of education and lack of all. He loves, he loves, he loves to come at us hard in those ways. And we are constantly facing that as the people of God, as people who are choosing to follow Jesus, as people who are standing up hopefully to say, Jesus, I want to be counted with you. Jesus, I want to be faithful to you. Jesus, I want to do what you're asking of me. As people who are making that decision daily, I hope the enemy is coming at us relentlessly relentlessly attacking our character, relentlessly attacking our abilities, relentlessly attacking our efforts. That's part of how the enemy comes against us. Well, how does Nehemiah respond? Well, let's look at verse 4. It says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So what does Nehemiah do? As insults and scorn and derision and attacks on his character, attacks on his ability are being hurled at him, what does he do? Does he respond back? And say, well, Tobiah, you're stupid. And Sanballat, you're fat. Does he attack back? Does he seek to deride them? Does he seek to scorn them? No. What he does is he turns to the Lord. There's absolutely no evidence that Nehemiah ever verbally insulted, verbally derided, verbally scorned those who were doing that to him. Instead... He turned to the Lord. And the only way we are ever, ever, ever going to navigate the attacks that come against us, the only way that we are ever going to be able to endure the opposition that rises against us is if we are constantly and regularly turning to the Lord. Complaining about it, gossiping about it, whining about it, is not going to give us what we need to endure the opposition that comes against us. In the flesh, it may make us feel better. Shouting back, yelling back, insulting back, talking bad back. At the moment in our flesh, that may make us feel better. 
but it's absolutely useless in ultimately helping us to stand against the opposition that rises against us. And so what Nehemiah does is what we have to do, which is turn to the Lord. Constantly. Constantly. As we said, the opposition against us is relentless. The opposition against us is constant. So our turning to the Lord cannot be occasional. Our turning to the Lord cannot be haphazard, cannot be inconsistent. Our turning to the Lord has to be constant. Our turning to the Lord has to be relentless. Our turning to the Lord has to be a regular part of our daily life. Because the opposition is not going away. It will one day be destroyed. We know that. Jesus will come again. And Jesus will destroy everything that is opposed to him with the breath of his mouth and with the sword of his mouth and with the glory of his splendor. That day will come. But that day is not here yet. And until that day does come, we need to use what God has given us to stand against the opposition that rises against us. And ignoring the opposition or trying to avoid the opposition or cowering in fear from the opposition or being intimidated from the opposition or trying to fight the opposition in our flesh, all of that is useless. All of that is useless. What we need to be doing constantly and regularly and faithfully is turning to the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah did. He turned to the Lord. And the start of his prayer is so simple. He says, Lord, hear! Hear what they are saying! You know, one of the greatest encouragements that God gives us is that reassurance that he hears, that he sees, that he knows, that he understands all that is coming against you, all that is opposing you, all that is seeking to derail you from being faithful to the Lord. One of the greatest assurances we have is that God sees and God hears and God knows and God understands. That is real encouragement. That is real encouragement. It's not as fleshly satisfying as cursing back and punching back, and deriding back, but it is far more spiritually powerful. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing the Corinthians, he says, the weapon of our warfare, they're not fleshly, they're not carnal, they're not natural. They're spiritual. They're powerful. They're effective. They're able to tear down strongholds. They are able to destroy everything that rises up in opposition to Christ. Whoa! That's what we have. Church, that's what we have. He was just speaking to ordinary Christians. He wasn't speaking to fellow apostles. He wasn't speaking to fellow elders. He was speaking to the entire church in Corinth. And he says the weapons of our warfare are powerful. They're spiritual. They're not natural. But they are able to destroy strongholds. They are able to tear down everything that rises in opposition. And you know what else it says? They are able to take every thought captive. The voice of the enemy, you're worthless. You're a sinner. You're a failure. Your efforts are pathetic. You'll never do anything. 
The weapons that you have are able to take every one of those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus Christ. That thought has to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are not worthless. In Christ, you are not pathetic. In Christ, your situation is not hopeless. In Christ, every one of your past sins is washed, forgiven, forgotten. And the weaponry that we have, the tools that God has given us to take every one of those thoughts captive, to make every one of those thoughts obedient, to make every one of those thoughts bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they're right there. They're right there for us every moment of every day. And it begins by constantly turning to the Lord. Constantly turning to the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah does. Now, of course, as we read the prayer of Nehemiah, a lot of us are saying, yeah, because he says, Lord, don't blot out their iniquities. Lord, don't forget their wicked behavior. Lord, don't let them off the hook. Lord, get them because of what they're doing to us. And a lot of us are like, yeah, you go, Nehemiah, you pray that prayer. Some of us are reminded of some of the Psalms where David says, Make all of my enemies wives widows. Make all of my enemies children's orphans. Smash their teeth on the rock. God, destroy them. And a lot of us read those Psalms and we're like, Yeah! Get him, Lord! That guy cut me off in traffic. Get him into a fender bender. We won't go as far as saying total his car, but get him into a fender bender. That guy spoke to me wrong. I'm going to speak to him wrong. I'm going to get him back. Get him back, Lord. That's what Nehemiah prays, right? I mean, let's not pretend he doesn't. That's absolutely what he prays. That's absolutely pray. He says, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. And Lord, do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. He's saying, remember their sins and punish them for their sins. That's what he's saying. That's what he's praying. So he's turning to the Lord, and we must turn to the Lord. And one thing that he is doing that we can continue to do is he's absolutely putting it in God's hands. He's not saying, Lord, I'm going to take them captive. He's not saying, Lord, I'm going to make sure I punish them for their sins. He's leaving it in the Lord's hands. He's saying, Lord, you take care of them. You take care of them. That's what he's praying. So what do we do with that? Can we pray for lightning to strike down our boss because we hate him? Can we pray for our neighbor's house to burn down because we hate them? Can we pray for someone's car to have an accident because we hate them? Is that how we can pray? Can we take that prayer of Nehemiah and pray the same thing? Lord, don't forget his sins and punish him for his sins because he's a nasty guy and I don't like him. Can we pray that? Can we pray that? Well, that's a big question. That's a big question. Because Nehemiah was furious at the enemies of God. And rightly so. Nehemiah was furious at the opposition that the work of the Lord was experiencing, and rightly so. But at that point, what he understood to be the enemies of God and what he knew to be the enemies of God were flesh and blood individuals. Well, what we realize is there's far more that stands behind the flesh and blood individuals. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, the Apostle Paul gives us an incredible window into who our real enemies are. We have flesh and blood enemies. We do. But that's not where the real fight is. The real fight is not with that flesh and blood individual. The real fight is with something far more sinister, far more evil, far more necessary of our attention and of our prayer focus. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, our real enemy, our real opponent, our real adversary is not our boss, is not our neighbor, is not that person that hurt us and disappointed us and angered us and betrayed us. Our real enemy is the spiritual force that stands behind them. Our real enemy, our real opposition, comes from the devil and comes from the spiritual realm, and that's where our fight is. You see, Paul doesn't say, you know, punch that guy out that cursed you out. Paul says, no, the weapons that the Lord has given us, they're spiritual. They're able to tear down spiritual strongholds. Don't just run that unbeliever over with your car because you're mad at them. Pray that the devil who is holding them captive, pray that the enemy who is influencing them, pray that that stronghold is destroyed. Pray that that enemy bows the knee to Christ. Because you see, the material realm follows the spiritual realm. What we are seeing manifest in this natural, physical reality is simply a reflection of what is going on in the spiritual realm. So if God in Jesus Christ has given us the weapons to engage in warfare in the spiritual realm, why would we punch at physical enemies? It's like God has given us a nuclear missile, but we're happy picking up a stone. Why would we do that? You see, what it really shows is how completely ignorant we are. It shows how completely ignorant we are. The weapons that we have are so much more powerful than engaging with simple flesh and blood enemies. That, 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 that's just like I say, that's like picking up a stone when God's given us an atomic bomb. Why would we do that? Well, it satisfies the flesh, and it seems to be solving the problem, but it never really does. It never really does. And so, yes, absolutely, we can pray the prayer of Nehemiah, and we can pray the, the psalms of cursing the enemies of God's people, but not flesh and blood enemies. The real enemy, the devil, and his dominion of darkness, and all of his demonic companions. That's the real stronghold. That's the real source of our opposition. That's the real problem. And the thing that's so awesome is because Jesus Christ has come, and because he's died, and because he's risen, and because he's given us his Holy Spirit, we actually have weapons to fight in that realm. I mean, I love the Marvel movies, but they're like nothing compared to what's true. What we have to fight in the heavenly realm 
What we have to engage the spiritual enemies of all humanity blow the Marvel Universe away. And that's not some made-up comic book movie. This is reality. This is what the Lord has given us. So pray the prayer of Nehemiah. Turn to the Lord. Leave matters in his hands. But pray and ask him to destroy his enemies. To tear down those strongholds. To destroy all of the spiritual realm that stands in opposition to him. As you pray that, you will see it trickle down into the physical world. The most effective way to pray for your natural enemy is to pray for the spiritual stronghold that is enslaving them. To pray against that. That's what the Lord has given us the ability to do. That's what the Lord has given us the weapons to use. So why aren't we using them? Why aren't we using them? That's what we have access to. But see what else Nehemiah did. Verse 6, it's so matter-of-fact, it smacks you in the face. It says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So what did Nehemiah do when the opposition came? What did Nehemiah do when they started to ridicule, when they started to mock, when they started to stand against him? What did he do? He kept doing what God asked him to do. He just said, okay, Lord, you take care of them. I know what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. He was not derailed. He was not sidelined. He was not distracted. He simply continued to do what the Lord asked him to do. He said, okay, we've got some enemies. Okay, we've got some opposition. Okay, they're coming hard against us. Lord, you take care of them because I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm not going to stop building the wall. I'm not going to, you know, cower and be afraid and be intimidated. I'm simply going to continue to do what you wanted me to do. Because that's what you called me to. That's what you created me for. That's why I'm breathing your air. That's why I'm eating your food. That's why I'm living on your planet. Is to do what you want me to do. So, okay, there's enemies. Okay, there's opposition. Okay, there's those who are rising against me. God, you take care of them. You take care of them. They're your problem. I'm simply going to do what you want me to do. That's verse 6. And you know what? It says half the wall was built. Half the wall was built. The enemy hates that. The enemy hates when we leave matters in God's hands, when we turn to the Lord and say, Lord, this is your problem. You take care of it. And the enemy hates when we simply continue to do what God wants us to do. That's how we defeat him. You see, another incredibly powerful weapon that the Lord has given us? Obedience. Oh, the enemy hates obedience. He hates it. The enemy hates when we do what God asks of us. The enemy hates obedience. So just obey. Just obey because the enemy is infuriated and he ultimately becomes powerless as we walk in obedience. The enemy loves to sideline us. He loves to distract us. He loves to have fear and doubt and discouragement paralyze us. And these are things that are constantly, constantly, constantly coming against us. 
But what the enemy hates is when we obey. Is when we obey. And say, Lord, I'm simply going to continue to do what you want me to do. There's a lot more chapter 4 to read. Uh, You know, let's just pull out some highlights here. Because I realize I've been up here for a while. And the junior and seer hires, they know how long I can go. Again, going back to our flesh and blood enemies. Going back to the nature of the battle that we are in. Look at some of the challenges that the New Testament gives us. Matthew 6. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I don't think Jesus means pray that I will destroy them the way that Nehemiah prayed. Love those who are your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter 6, bless those who curse you. Romans 12, 21, overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this is another, not so popular, but another incredibly powerful weapon that God has given us. Do you want to completely destroy the work of the enemy? Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Give your cloak as well as your jacket. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are mean to you. Love your enemies. Completely destroys the work of the enemy. One of the biggest mistakes the church makes is feels like we've got to fight in our own flesh. Feels like we have to fight in our own flesh, that we've got to get in our licks because we've gotten hit a few times. You see, Jesus completely turns that on his head. And you know the context of, of, of Matthew 5 and Luke 6? The context is Jesus says, you know what? Because my father is kind to the wicked. You know what? The field of the wicked? My father lets rain fall on their field. My father lets the crops of the wicked grow. My father causes his sun to shine on the fields of the unrighteous. My God, my Father, gives the wicked food to eat. My Father blesses the wicked even though they are wicked. Become like my Father. Become like my Father, who shows incredible compassion and incredible kindness and incredible patience with the wicked. That's exactly what Jesus says. Be like my Father, because he's kind to his enemies. Now, of course, we know he's not kind forever, and he's not only kind, but that's his business. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Our business is to love, to forgive, to bless, to pray. That's our business. And you want to talk about weapons that are unbelievably spiritually powerful? Forgive your enemy. Bless that one who curses you. Show kindness to the one who hates you. Turn the other cheek when you are scornfully abused. Go the second mile when you are sinfully being taken advantage of. Talk about powerful spiritual weapons. The enemy has nothing against that. The enemy is utterly and completely and totally defeated when we choose to live that way. See, I told you you weren't going to like this message. This is not a fun message. This is not a pleasant message. This is not an easy message. But you know the heart and the root of all of this is Jesus going to the cross. He said, nobody takes my life from me. 
I lay it down. Talk about turning the other cheek. Jesus didn't preach that. Jesus lived that. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. When he was being scorned and derided on the cross, he didn't respond in kind. You're the son of God. You saved others. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Prove to us. Then we'll believe. You know, Peter highlights that. He said, you know what? Jesus gave no response. He didn't return insult for insult, scorn for scorn. That's the source of our ability to walk this out. And it completely and totally destroys the enemy. You know, why are we even talking about this today? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, We do not want to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We do not want to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Part of why Nehemiah chapter 4 is here is God was completely revealing and completely undoing the plans of the enemy by revealing them. Look specifically at verse 15. Let's just read this verse. Verse 15. It says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, God frustrated them. You see, what, what the NIV has there is when the enemy heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated them. Probably not the way it should be read. What it probably says is that when the enemy was aware that we knew what was going on, the Lord frustrated their plans. You see, the reason why the Bible talks about the devil, the reason why the Bible talks about his schemes, is because he doesn't want us to be ignorant of them. So when you're wrestling with depression, when you're wrestling with discouragement, when you're wrestling with fear, when you're wrestling with doubt, when you're wrestling with all of those crazy thoughts that are constantly coming into your mind, the Lord wants you to be aware of the fact this is the attack of the enemy. And you have weapons to stand against this. You have weapons to stand against this. Don't be surprised by this. This is how he works. He attacks your character. He attacks your abilities. He attacks your efforts. He comes at you hard and relentlessly. But what you have is more than enough. What you have is more than enough. So don't be blindsided by him. Don't think you're going to be the one who avoids his gaze. He absolutely is going to come against you. He's going to come against you hard. And this is how he's going to do it. But you have everything that you need to take those thought captives, to tear down those strongholds. Everything that you need. Last thing, and I'm going to conclude with this. There's a lot more in chapter 4. We're not going to have time to get to it. Looking at verses 19 and 20, and this is particularly in light of the last two years. It says, then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. The wall was so big, and the Jews were so few, that as they were working on the wall, they were widely spread out. 
It wasn't some, you know, well-fortified phalanx of, you know, Roman soldiers like we see in the movies where they've got shields that connect. There were huge gaps between one Jew working on this section of the wall and another Jew working on that section of the wall. There were huge gaps, kind of like the gaps in Michigan State's defense that Ohio State found yesterday. Huge gaps. And so that was a problem. Now, that was necessary. That was necessary to do the work of the Lord. It was necessary to do the work of the Lord, that the people of God had to spread themselves thin. That was necessary for the wall to be rebuilt. But what does Nehemiah say? When you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to that place. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, gather to the place of the trumpet call, because that means there's trouble there. And the people of God would find strength as they rallied to the trumpet call. And God would fight for them as they rallied to the trumpet call. Now, you know, COVID scattered us. COVID put us on Zoom. COVID put in-person gatherings on hold for a long time. But now we are able to gather. Now we are able to rally. Every Sunday, there's a trumpet call. We need to rally to that call, living word. We need to rally to that call. I know Zoom is convenient. And I know Zoom is a blessing. And I know there are some that are physically incapable of getting here. That's why we have continued Zoom. But don't choose it because it's the easy path. Don't choose it because it gives you more free time. Don't choose it because it's convenient. If you have to, yes, absolutely, we want you to join us on Zoom. But there's a rallying cry every Sunday. There is a trumpet blast every Sunday. And if you are not here, you're missing it. The most effective way that the enemy picks us off is keep us isolated. That's why Zoom was such a blessing, but that's why COVID was so devastating because it kept us isolated. But now we're able to gather. Yes, we still have to wear a mask. That one day will end. I'm confident of that. But now we're able to gather. So again, all I'm asking you is to simply hear the trumpet call that blows every Sunday. And we as the people of God, we've got to rally. Do we want to see revival in this city? Do we want to see revival in Philadelphia? Do we want to see revival in Living Word? Then it's not necessarily going to be the easiest. You know, I drove in with a lot of fear this morning. I thought I was going to get stopped at 17th and Vine. But you know what? I just drove all the way in. There wasn't a single roadblock. You know, the enemy loves to make us afraid. The enemy loves to discourage us. The enemy loves to give us doubt. So that's what we're seeing. If fear is determining your choice, if discouragement is determining your choice, if doubt is determining your choice, that's probably not the Lord. It's probably not the Lord. That's why the Lord strips the curtain back on the enemy. To say, look, if fear is motivating you, if doubt is motivating you, if discouragement is motivating you, that's the voice of the enemy. Take that thought captive. Make it obedient to me. I do not motivate by intimidation and fear and discouragement and doubt. That's not how the Lord motivates us. So if that's what's 
making you make the decisions that you are making, it's time to reevaluate. It's time to reevaluate. We are going to keep Zoom going. We are. I was this close in the elders' meeting to saying, let's just shut down Zoom for two months because then people will have no choice but to be here on Sunday. And of course, the wiser elders said, no, we can't do that because there are some that physically cannot be here on Sunday morning, and I realize that. But some of us, unfortunately, are simply at this point choosing Zoom out of convenience, and that has to stop. That has to stop. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. It has to stop. There's a rallying cry, there's a trumpet blast every Sunday morning. And you need to be here. You need to be here. If we are going to make a difference in this city, if we are going to make a difference and see revival come to living word, we have to be here when we can. We have to be here when we can. The work of the Lord scatters us. The weak scatters us. We're in every neighborhood in the city. We're in all sorts of different places. But Sunday morning is a trumpet blast. Sunday morning is a rallying cry. And if we think the enemy is not attacking, then we, we've already lost. <laughs> if we think the enemy is not relentlessly coming against us, we've already lost. And if we think we don't need this rallying cry every Sunday, we're mistaken. We need to be here. We need to be here. So, okay, I realize this was not the happiest message. I realize this was not the most pleasant message. But thank you for sitting through it. Because I do believe... It is something that we need to hear. Don't let the attacks of the enemy intimidate you. They're going to come. They're going to come. Simply take the response of Nehemiah. Leave it in the Lord's hands. Pray relentlessly and continue to do the work that the Lord has put in front of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, of course, we do want to thank you so much for your word. And Lord, there are so many times that your word strengthens us with strong encouragement. But there are times, Lord, that your word strengthens us through challenging messages. And Lord, we see that Ezra and Nehemiah were opposed at every turn. That they had enemies. Enemies that hated them and enemies that wanted to destroy them and enemies that wanted to stop your work with your people at that time. And we see, Lord God, that ultimately you frustrated the plans of the enemy. And of course, Lord, the most sinister plan of the enemy was nailing the Son of God to a cross. And what we see, Lord, is that is your greatest victory. You completely turned the attack of the enemy on its head and you brought salvation to the entire planet through that. That's what you are able to do. And so, Father, I pray for myself and I pray for each one of us. Lord, of course, there are times that our flesh is strong and we feel lazy and we feel discouraged and we feel intimidated and we feel frightened and we have doubts. Jesus, give us the grace to take every one of those thoughts captive. Give us the grace to take every one of those thoughts, making it obedient to you. And help us to move forward. Help us to move forward. Lord, you've been so gracious to living word. Our doors should have closed a half a dozen times decades ago, but we're still here. We're still here. And God, you're still giving us the grace to send forth a trumpet blast every Sunday morning, a rallying cry for your people to come and to gather, to worship you, to pray, and to hear your word. I ask, Lord God, that you would help each one of us to continue with what you've given us. We know you love us, Lord. We know that you gave everything for us. Help us now to respond with a life of faithfulness and obedience. 
And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. Well, folks, I've been here...